from the heart of our nation's capital. Here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony as he continues to enjoy a vacation with his family. Glad that you are with us this evening. Uh, the reminder, the program can always be found at TonyPerkins.com. If you miss it live, catch it there. Every program also. Download the Stand Firm app wherever you get your apps. You can get the program delivered directly to your phone through the app as well as a whole bunch of other FRC resources. Today on the program, as we continue our conversation about Afghanistan and the unfolding events there, another topic that may actually be related now, should women be forced to register for the draft? That question is being asked in Congress right now. There is some momentum. We will discuss that in light of the current events. In addition, it's back to school season. The Department of Justice created a back to school video. Was it really just a video to make transgender students feel welcome, as it claims to be? Or was it a threat to local schools? We'll talk about that as well. In addition, why is the Chinese government so pleased with developments in Afghanistan this week? Coming up at the end of the program, we'll find out why. But first, uh, President Biden claimed that his administration had planned for every contingency in Afghanistan. And among the plans they had in place was one that considered, quote, the rapid collapse we are seeing now. So did the administration plan in advance to tell Americans in Afghanistan that the United States cannot guarantee their safety to the international airport in Kabul, as the State Department is now saying? Is leaving behind Americans and Afghan allies part of the plan? National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan dodged that question when asked by a reporter yesterday about what happens after the August 31st deadline. Our mission is not complete by August 31st, and there are Americans and Afghan allies who remain there. Will U.S. troops stay until everyone is out, or will they leave? So I'm not going to comment on hypotheticals. What I'm going to do is stay focused on the task at hand, which is getting as many people out as rapidly as possible, and we will take that day by day. So you can't commit to bringing back every American The Pentagon had stressed last Friday that it is a planning organization. So what is the plan? That's something that Republicans on the House Armed Services Committee have been asking for months. And now they want to know how the president's plans to prevent terror groups from using Afghanistan as a safe haven, what they are after the Taliban take over. With me now to talk about this and more is U.S. Congressman Mark Green, who is a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, we are currently waiting for Congressman Green. He has written a letter uh, with his uh, with several of his colleagues on the committee to the White House inquiring about the Biden administration plan. It turns out uh, that he had been requesting this information. Many members of, co of, of Congress have been requesting that information uh, for months. They had never received a response. Now they wonder if that means that's because there was no plan. With me now to talk about his letter is U.S. Congressman Mark Green, a member of the U.S. Armed Services Committee. He 
is also an ER physician, a decorated combat veteran who ser served three tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He represents the 7th Congressional District of Tennessee. Congressman Green, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Always enjoy it. Well, we are thankful to you for your service and, and for uh, in, in the past and in the present. Um, you heard the the comments. I want to start there uh, from from the White House, uh, from uh, Sullivan about what's happening in Afghanistan. Is this part of the plan? Um, what are they going to do after August 31st? They cannot necessarily guarantee, it seems, safe passage for Americans in Kabul to the airport to evacuate. What's your response? You know, my response is if they don't have the capacity to get Americans, and as I understand it, there could be as many as 10,000 Americans outside of Kabul but still in Afghanistan. If they don't have the capacity, they, never, they need to fix that tonight and get the combat power on the ground to get Americans out of Afghanistan. It is unconscionable. And I mean unconscionable that they don't have that capacity and don't seem to care. Um, they need to do whatever they can. Every single American who is in Afghanistan needs to come home. I think almost every American uh, listening to you would agree with that. Do you think that would require some kind of escalation? It may very well require re retaking Bagram Airfield. It may require doing missions into the country. Um, you know, it, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it, we're not leaving an American behind. I mean, this is the ethos of our country, of who we are, of our military. The fact that Austin just so nonchalantly today in the uh, uh, in his uh, you know press conference with Mark Milley said uh, we don't have the capacity and just moved on like it was no big deal, that should infuriate every single American. And I think it does, at least in the state of Tennessee, it does. Um, so I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I can only believe, I, I knew Lloyd Austin when he was a battalion commander in the 82nd Airborne Division, and I was a rifle company commander in a sister battalion. And I've known Mark Milley for years. I, I can only believe that our president, our commander-in-chief, uh, you know, which our titles that guy probably shouldn't have. He certainly is not co competent to do the job, I mean, apparently, um, is telling these guys no. It's the, it's the only thing that makes sense because I, I've known these guys for years. I know they don't want to leave a man behind or a woman behind. And, uh, and so, you know, that press conference today, uh, I, I mean, I, I was already upset. Lord forgive me. Uh, but good night. I mean, if Tony would get this, I think you guys get this. Sometimes you have to flip the money changers tables over. Uh, this, this is, this, this is righteous anger. We have Americans that are in harm's way. Let's get them out, whatever it takes. Yeah, I think you speak for a lot of people. You're referring, of course, to statements from Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin today. And I want to read part of the quote here. He said, it's obvious we're not close to where we want to be. We're going to get everyone that we can possibly evacuate evacuated. And I'll do that as long as we possibly can until the clock runs out or we run out of capability. It seems to be a strange concession. The first part of that, it's obvious that we're not close to where we want to be. Is that inconsistent with statements from President Biden earlier in the week when he said that they had planned for every contingency? Oh, I, th I think this whole, uh, you know, uh, debacle, humiliating uh, scenario, situation is, 
is proof that they uh, they weren't prepared for this. And even uh, you know, General Milley said that they were surprised with the speed with which the Taliban was able to to basically take over the country. Um, and I would I would submit that's either an intelligence failure or we we didn't listen to the intelligence um, because uh, America should never be surprised by something like that. Um, so. You've said earlier this week that uh, you and many other congressional offices are, are receiving tons of calls from people that you know in Afghanistan. Uh, tell me about the nature of those calls and, and what are you telling them? Yeah, so mo most of it is text feeds, you know, from people in Afghanistan with images and pictures of what's going on on the ground. Uh, it's heartrending. Uh, we're, we're telling them, you know, what we know, and that is if they can get to the airport with the appropriate documentation, the, uh, you know, the United States will get them home. Um, of course, the challenge is getting through the Taliban to get to the airport because for some odd reason, uh, that makes no sense. We decided to just collapse in on one airfield, which isn't even the best airfield to do a non-combatant evacuation operation based on what I know about the country. Uh, Bagram and many other places have better airfields with, uh, you know, probably easier to secure. Uh, Kandahar, I've been to Kandahar International. It's a, it's a big place in the middle of a lot of people. So, um, you know, don't, I just don't understand the thinking here. On Monday, State Department spokesman Ned Price, he highlighted a statement from the U.N. Security Council to the Taliban. I want to play that for you and then give you get your reaction. Sure. The U.N. Security Council issued a joint press statement earlier today calling for a new government that is united, inclusive, and representative, including with the full and, full and meaningful participation of women. The council spoke with one voice to underscore that Afghanistan must abide by its international obligations, including to international humanitarian law, and ensure the safety and security of all Afghans and international citizens. Do you think that's meaningful to the Taliban? Do you think the uh, charm offensive that they've been putting on over the last week or so uh, is, is significant in any way? Well, my apologies. I, I did not hear uh, the clip when it was played there. I, I could see that he was talking, but I, I couldn't hear what he said. Um, I will you know, paraphrase for you. He, he essentially said that they were calling for the Taliban to have a, a tolerant and an inclusive government and include women in leadership positions, essentially calling for them to be inclusive in what they do. And so uh, what are your hopes? Has the Taliban turned a page? You know, this is a problem with uh, liberal Democrats. They they don't seem to understand that there are tigers out there. You can go all the way back to the Carter administration and his efforts to, you know, basically have detente with the Soviet Union. And you look at the current president when he was vice president. They let the folks go from Gitmo with lots of hope that those people would be better people when they got back to Afghanistan. Well, they got back to Afghanistan and they've led this attack. Um, it, hope when they pulled out of Iraq that in 2011 that nothing would happen. Of course, we know what happened there. It created a vacuum and ISIS was born and started lopping people's heads off. Um, it, there's this utopian vision that liberals seem to have, they, driving Biden now to say, oh, let's get back in the deal with Iran. You know, the guys who've been killing American soldiers in Iraq for years. Uh, 
I, I, I don't think either the Taliban has changed and apparently Democrats have changed. The Democrats want uh, to sing Kumbaya and hold hands. Uh, meanwhile, the bad guys want to kill us. If you look at what uh, the Taliban did to take control of all this part of the country, they, UNICEF reported they killed, brutally killed 27 children. Children. Um, they're already taking young girls as brides. Um, I mean, it's the rape. Uh, these are sadistic, uh, twisted, uh, you know, people. And there's thinking that suddenly overnight, uh, because they've taken over a country, uh, they're going to become responsible international players is foolish. We're talking to Congressman Mark Green from Pennsylvania. Congressman, we have about a minute left. You've written a and letter. You and several of your colleagues have written a letter to Congress. Uh, very quickly, what, what are you asking from the – or you've written a letter to the White House, excuse me, um, about the plan. What are you hoping to get from the White House? We need to understand the exact mechanisms for getting all these people out. Right now, the flow rates don't look like they can get enough people out by the deadline. So what are you going to do? Are you going to ex extend past the deadline August the 31st? What's the plan to increase the rate of flow of people out of there? What's the plan to get, uh, you know, the Americans who aren't in that Kabul perimeter inside that Kabul perimeter? Uh, we want to know. And, uh, you know, we demand, I mean, I, we're a co-equal branch of government, the United States Congress. Tell us what you're doing and tell us what the plan is. You speak for a lot of Americans. Congressman Green, appreciate your time today. Thanks. Have a great day. Well, the military may be struggling with the evacuation of Afghanistan right now, but they have had it dialed in in the early days of the Biden administration when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of those equality efforts has to do with whether women, in the name of equality, should be required to register for the draft. Is that a good idea or not? We'll discuss it when we come back. When it comes to reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's Word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading Scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's Word. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org slash Bible. God is the author of life and has created man in His image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life, from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. 
where your state stands on pro-life abortion, check out our pro-life maps at frc.org slash pro-life maps. Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's Word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and for Tony today, does the collapse in Afghanistan suggest that our military leaders have spent more time on social experiments than military readiness? Though he has advisors, it seems that President Biden is either getting bad advice or ignoring the advice that he's getting. Either way, it's a problem. While this spells bad news for what's going on in Afghanistan, there's also reason for concern here in the United States, where an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act threatens to require women to register for the selective service. FRC recently released a new issue brief on why women should not be drafted into selective service. Joining me now to talk about this is the author of the publication, Mary Beth Waddell, FRC's Director of Federal Affairs for Family and Religious Liberty. Mary Beth, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here again with you, Joseph. Well, first, tell us why is this an issue that we need to talk about? What's happening on, on the Hill? Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, before going into August recess and before everything with infrastructure, as we've discussed, the Senate Armed Services Committee took up the National Defense Authorization Act, and there was an amendment that passed that would require women to sign up for the selective service. Um, it, the language of the amendment just says that all Americans, so getting rid of indigen, any gender reference, uh, must sign up for the selective service. Now, to remind folks, what's FRC's position when it comes to women serving in the military? We honor and value the women who serve and have no problem with women in service. Um, you know, I, on a personal note, I have a number of friends who serve and serve with distinction and honor. This is about requiring women to replenish the front lines when soldiers have given the ultimate sacrifice. And, and that's not okay. And you've written an article with several reasons why you think that's a problem. Uh, what are the concerns? Uh, there are a number of them. You know, as you were already mentioning, the sort of the impetus behind this seems to be, sure, we want to have equality and be equal, but we know that a lot of times when progressives use that language, they mean their social agenda, you know, and this is something that's completely unnecessary. It, um, 
you know, it undermined military readiness, lethality, unit cohesion. Um, there's no real uh, military or national security reason for it. So that leads one to think that, oh, you know, this must just be about the social agenda. This really isn't about women and women's rights and women's equality. And, and to that point, is the primary argument uh, in on behalf of those who would like to see this change, is it purely a matter of equality that if we want men and women to be treated equally, uh, women must bear the responsibility of the draft just like men? Is that the primary argument? I think that's part of it. And then you also have uh, those, you know, as I mentioned, it's unnecessary. Um, if we needed to double our military, that would only require less than one and a half percent of the male population to serve in a draft. And so that's completely doable. But, you know, there's I think part of it is people claim that uh, we might not have the the males that we need, that we need sort of an all hands on deck situation. And and I don't know that that's actually the case. I it seems that it's not if you look at the numbers. You also mentioned in the publication that uh, that it's considerably more dangerous for women to be in combat than for men. Why is that? It is. You know, again, we, we must acknowledge the physical differences between men and women. Um, equality doesn't mean that there's 100% equal in everything that individuals can do. You know, men and women are created differently for different purposes and, and with different bodies. And all the, the studies show that when that there are fewer women who can meet the physical requirements um, for being in on the front lines in the most austere of situations, uh, which is what the draft would essentially be replacing. And, you know, when it comes to the standards... Uh, of the draft, they're a little bit lesser than your normal procedures. And so you could have women who are not actually physically fit to be able to carry, you know, a multi-pound rucksack, you know, across the most austere of terrain. Um, and also you have all male but uh, units actually operate better than co-ed units. There's studies that have found that as well. I think you make a good point, uh, one that uh, equality is not the same as sameness. Equality under the law, equality in human dignity does not imply and should not imply that in every way every human is the same, because, of course, that's obviously not true. And one of the greatest distinctions is, is biological and between the sexes. I'll ask an, another question. Do women want to be included in the draft in the name of women's equality. Is this a, is this a movement amongst uh, women's liberation types that I'm not aware of? This is certainly not a large spread movement. You know, I'm sure you could find those who would argue that yes, they as women should be uh, required into the draft, but that's certainly not the mainstream. You have much more concern about, you know, the erasure of, women and erasure of the distinctions between men and women and those types of issues uh, are of much greater concern. Mary Beth, where can people go to get your publication? They can go to frc.org slash drafting women. 
FRC.org slash drafting women. Uh, we'll encourage people to go there and look at that. See the reasons why maybe it's not great public policy uh, for the United States to require uh, men, women to register for the draft. Mary Beth Waddell, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Joseph. And, and, and a final point that I think is worth mentioning in this uh, conversation is that there has not been a draft employed since 1973 in the United States, which is, of course, a good thing. Uh, we haven't been forced to require, compel anyone into military service, which begs the question, then why would we feel the need at this point uh, to force women to make themselves eligible. It seems to be a form of uh, bureaucratic virtue signaling that is simply not necessary. But next, before we head back into our coverage of Afghanistan, we're going to look at a recent back-to-school video that the Justice Department released. Is President Biden just protecting transgender students? Does he just want to make them feel comfortable? Or is he trying to threaten the school down the street? We'll talk about it when we come back. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org slash blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org slash blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. When it comes to China, Russia, and even the Taliban, President Biden and his administration have been cautious and measured. But when it comes to making sure boys are allowed into girls' locker rooms and boys are allowed to play on girls' sports teams, he couldn't be clearer. Here are clips from a five-minute back-to-school video posted by the Department of Justice just yesterday, in which the Biden administration essentially pledges to crack down on schools that disagree with the idea that boys can become girls. 
But we also want you to know that the Department of Education and the entire federal government stand behind you. Discrimination will not be accepted on our watch. Right now, we are fighting against laws that tried to ban transgender athletes in West Virginia and deny health care for transgender young people in Arkansas. We stand behind you and are ready to act to defend your rights. Has the Biden administration turned the crosshairs away from the Taliban and on to those who dare to believe that boys cannot become girls? Joining me now to discuss this is Roger Severino, who served as a director of the HHS Office of Civil Rights in the Trump administration. He is currently a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Roger, welcome back to the program. How are you? Great. Good to see you. Uh, what was your reaction when you first saw this video? I thought it was a very unusual back-to-school statement. Uh, so many things going on with COVID and all the uncertainty to focus on the transgender ideology, I thought was an interesting choice. But if you really listen closely, as you mentioned, it really is about allowing biological boys access to girls' locker rooms and access to the winner's podium in girls' sports, as well as healthcare. It's a question of should teens or even, you know, prepubescent, be allowed to undergo these radical surgeries that will change their lives forever, and should doctors be required to go along with it? And that's really what it's about. And that's what's really shocking is how aggressive the Biden administration has been. And this video is further evidence of where their focus is. I mean, they had a, a person from HHS, Department of Education, as well as, D, as DOJ. So it is definitely a whole of government approach they're using every tool in their arsenal to push transgender ideology during back-to-school season. Do you think this video is really, as it claims to be on its face, simply a back-to-school message? Or are we expected to read between the lines and see a threat here uh, for those who might disagree with the administration's uh, perspective on sex? Well, there's a whole lot of symbolism there. They, they wanted to get multiple agencies, and you had the transgender... Dr. Rachel Levine, who's at a uh, transgender person who's at the Department of Health and Human Services, who's Assistant Secretary of Health. That's a high-ranking position. And including that for a back-to-school message, why do you need a, uh, a medical doctor uh, involved in that? Well, because it's really about the surgeries that's ultimately uh, going to be pushed, as well as the cross-sex hormones. They're actually allowing prepubescent children to have puberty blockers that will have lifelong consequences. And of course, with the help in many very liberal places of their school counselors and their school nurses to cut out the parents from the equation. And what we're seeing here is that if parents start getting in the way and schools aren't pushing one particular view of this complicated question, then you might end up with a civil rights lawsuit being pushed by the Biden administration or at the very least an investigation from these civil rights offices of which I used to be the head of one. The video specifically mentions uh, a law in Arkansas that was passed this year to prohibit minors from undergoing sex change operations and also a bill in West Virginia, which requires biological males to compete on male sports teams. And they singled those states out as examples of problems that the Department of, of uh, justice was going after. Uh, do you think that that is going to deter other states, other state legislatures, other school districts from uh, exercising their best judgment on this subject? 
Well, it depends. Are they going to fold like Governor Noam of South Dakota did when she got some pressure uh, on this question? Or are they going to stand up like some of these other states have? And if they stand up, they have a tremendous amount of law backing them. Because what's very misleading about that video, it wasn't about excluding transgender kids from sports. Not at all. It's about protecting women's and girls' sports and keeping the playing field fair and making sure that these sports facilities and lockers and showers respect the privacy rights of biological girls who don't want to see biological boys, however they identify, in their intimate spaces. That should be a safe space for women and girls, as well as the winner's podiums in sports. Think of the scholarships that are, are at stake. This is a complete inversion of Title IX, which is designed to protect girls in sports, among other things, and to flip it to say that biological boys, based on how they identify, determine whether or not they could beat girls. That's just a, a place that we shouldn't go, and states are pushing back one after another. Roger, we've got about a minute left, but there is a, a federal court case in Texas. Uh, well, in Texas, a federal court ruled that it is unlawful to force healthcare professionals to violate their conscience for gender transition procedures. Do you foresee the Biden administration uh, appealing that decision and, and trying to overturn that? Oh, yes, absolutely. And we dealt with that case early on in the Trump administration. We agreed with the court and we rolled back the Obama era era transgender mandate. But the Biden administration has not even waited for court decisions on point. They've already announced that they're going to enforce a transgender mandate. And this injunction hopefully will rein them back in. But as we've seen time and again, they are simply not respecting the law. They're going to do what they're going to do because ideology is trumping science and even the rule of law. Roger Severino, really appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. And when we come back, we're going to go back to Afghanistan, kind of. The Chinese government seems to be pretty excited about what's happening there. Why is that and should they be? We'll have a conversation about what this all means for the communist Chinese when we come back. Stay with us. What is religious freedom and why should you care about it, both domestically and internationally? By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world. God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org slash IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly, vote our biblical values, and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. Pray, Vote, Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. 
Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family and Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marshall Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph. Back home, glad that you're with us. The Chinese Communist Party has seized on President Biden's botched handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan to exploit foreign perceptions of American weakness and to subvert U.S. influence and power in critical regions like the Middle East. Here's a translated clip of what China's foreign ministry spokesman had to say on Monday after the Taliban's takeover of Kabul. No matter where U.S. troops have gone, in Iraq, Syria, or Afghanistan, they have created only turmoil, division, destruction of families, and a terrible mess. We hope the U.S. will seriously reflect on its arbitrary military interference and belligerent policy and stop wantonly interfering in the internal affairs of other countries and undermining peace and stability of other regions under the pretext of democracy and human rights. So the Chinese are now lecturing the United States on human rights, among other things. Joining me now to talk about all this is Gordon Chang. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China, as well as The Great U.S.-China Tech War. He can be found on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Joseph. Glad to have you. I just want to first give you a chance to respond to the comments from the... uh, from the, the spokeswoman there for the Chinese Communist government about uh, lecturing the United States effectively about its involvement around the world. What's your reaction to that? Well, the foreign ministry should have remembered that uh, the Taliban, when it was ruling Afghanistan, allowed its territory to be used by al-Qaeda to launch the 9-11 attacks on the United States. A little detail that she somehow omitted. And yes, It is difficult to transplant democracy to a place like Afghanistan, but ultimately it was important for the United States to remove Afghanistan as a base for terrorism, which was not only a base of terrorism against the U.S., but other countries as well. Well, in in the same statement, uh, she seemed to express some optimism about a friendly relationship that the Chinese communists could have with the Taliban. I'm going to play a clip of that as well and then let you react. 
The Afghan Taliban have repeatedly expressed their hope to develop good relations with China, that they look forward to China's participation in the reconstruction and development of Afghanistan and will never allow any forces to use Afghan territory to endanger China. China respects the right of the Afghan people to independently determine their own destiny and is willing to continue to develop friendly and cooperative neighbor relations with Afghanistan and play a constructive role in the peace and reconstruction of Afghanistan. Why do you think the Chinese communists seem so optimistic about having the Taliban as their new neighbors, or their old neighbors who are new neighbors? Well, China has had a robust relationship with the Taliban at least two years before 9-11, and also immediately after that horrible event. And in addition, China was a major supplier of small arms to the Taliban. This was at a time when the Taliban was fighting American and NATO forces, which means that China was helping uh, the Taliban kill Americans. Now, there's two stories here. One of them is China's complicity in all this. Also, American presidents refused to call China out for this. I mean, there was a more optimistic time when we hoped to integrate China in the international system. But I believe that there is never any justification for allowing China to kill Americans. Now, it, it, it's interesting that the Chinese government is taking this position because... On Monday, President Biden, he said, and I'll, I'll read a, a quote from him. He said, quote, our true strategic competitors, China and Russia, would love nothing more than the United States to continue to funnel billions of dollars and resources and attention into stabilizing Afghanistan indefinitely, end quote. Why do you think that was Biden's position, essentially saying that we need to get out of Afghanistan because the Chinese want us there? Well, that was one of the few true statements from Biden's comments. Um, now, I believe that the U.S. should have stayed in Afghanistan, but this is a very complicated issue. But one of the big advantages of leaving is what the president said, and that is that we had been spending a lot of time stabilizing Afghanistan, and China was one of the big beneficiaries of that. Now China has got to stabilize Afghanistan itself for its own reasons, and so right now, Beijing is going to have to devote a lot of its resources and a lot of its focus to actually its western border instead of, for instance, places like Taiwan. Um, but nonetheless, um, China right now, I think, sees opportunities, but it also sees a lot of danger in the U.S. withdrawal. And, and so help me understand that a, a little more, because it seems that the Chinese government is expressing uh, some real optimism about this development yet you say that this is ultimately going to be a challenge for them. Where do you see the biggest challenge coming for the Chinese uh, from the Taliban taking over again in Afghanistan? Well, the Taliban is the, obviously the strongest element in Afghanistan, but it's not the only one. And Afghanistan has, uh, and the Taliban has enemies. And those enemies now are the enemies of China. Also, there's another complicating factor here, and that is India. Now, India is no friend of the Taliban. And India has actually made life pretty difficult for China in Afghanistan this year, when earlier in the year, Indian intelligence operatives helped expose a uh, network of um, the Chinese and the Haqqani together. And so um, India right now also has a lot of incentive to make life difficult for China. And so, you know, China is going to have um, a, a really difficult situation on its hands because it now has new enemies. Do you think that means that uh, 
the new Taliban, the, the, se the second regime here, is going to be substantially different than the way they governed Afghanistan 20 years ago? Yeah, I, I don't know, but I would be really skeptical. I mean, I think we'd have to see. There have been early indications going both ways, but I think the Taliban is the Taliban. And we are going to see, after maybe a period of a several months of trying to act nice, that they go back to their old ways of killing enemies and certainly oppressing uh, females. So I actually not very optimistic about that. But the point is, China right now is bought into the Taliban, which means if the Taliban allows its territory to once again be used as terrorism, as a base for terrorism against the United States, the U.S. needs to hold China accountable. We didn't hold China accountable in the first decade of this century. We need to do so now. I want to ask you about how this affects Taiwan and its relationship with China. The, uh, the Communist Party, they actually said on their Twitter account, the Global Times, they wrote an article, an editorial. The Global Times is, is essentially the Chinese Communist Party's official newspaper. It's their, their propaganda, um, their, their mouthpiece there. And they said, um, a paraphrase of their editorial on Twitter, they said, if the U.S. cannot even secure a victory in a rivalry with small countries, how much better could it do in a major power game with China? It cannot win a war anymore. Now, does this, uh, should this be seen as a threat, as just a, a um, just kind of a statement? Is this a shot over the bow? Should Taiwan be concerned? How would you interpret that? Yeah, there have been two main Chinese propaganda narratives uh, in the last three or four days. One of them is that uh, Taiwan can't rely on the U.S. The other is what you just mentioned, and that is the U.S. can no longer counter China. This has been a theme that we've heard a number of times this year, most notably at the meeting in mid-March in Anchorage when China's top two diplomats came and lectured us and basically said the U.S. is no longer in a position of strength with regard to China, which means deterrence is breaking down. This is a very chilling message. And we have heard this a number of times this week as well, not only in the phrase, the phrase that you quoted, which is an extremely important one, Joseph, but in other ones as well. Do you think that Taiwan can still count on the United States? Um, there's only one person who can answer that question, and his address is 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest Washington, D.C., I tend to think the answer is yes for a number of reasons, um, largely because the U.S. is now seeing China in a very different light than it did three or four years ago, and certainly in a very different light than from the turn of the century. And I think the United States understands the critical importance of Taiwan, not only just as a question of democracy, not only as a question of strategic importance to our neighbors in Asia, but also to the defense of the United States as well. And because of that, I have a little bit of optimism. We saw enhanced American relationships with Taiwan in the last year and a half or so of the Trump administration. Biden um, has continued those approaches. So I think that this is bipartisan. Um, but, you know, right now you have a White House which is in disarray. So, you know, we have to be concerned that they are not going to continue um, policies that are in the best interest of the United States. 
And to be clear, the Biden administration has issued statements this week on this question, and they have said that they have every intention of standing by uh, treaties that they have previously made with the Taiwanese government. It remains to be seen if Chinese is going to uh, force the United States to, to actually back up their words, but uh, we would certainly hope so. Now, you have written... Uh, a lot about China, and, and one of the books that you've written uh, is called The Coming Collapse of China. And so you seem to be more pessimistic about their future than uh, they certainly seem to be uh, presently on Twitter. Uh, what did you mean by that? What do you see the future there being? Yeah. Joseph, in 2001, I wrote a book, um, which you just mentioned, where I predicted that the Communist Party would fail in 10 years. So I'm obviously wrong about timing. But, you know, what we're seeing right now in China are severe weaknesses. China, for instance, is facing the biggest demographic collapse in history in the absence of war and pestilence. The country can't feed itself. It had a food crisis last year, which has gotten worse this year. We have seen the scarcity of water, but even though flooding right now is gaining the headlines. And we see an economy which is stumbling because they can't control the coronavirus. The Delta variant has ripped through China, and basically Beijing has no answer for it. China has a lot of problems right now, which means it's even more dangerous than usual because Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, has some incentives to lash out. And Taiwan, of course, is one of those targets, but also India is a target, Japan is a target, and the United States is a target. Do you think China is prepared to fight a war? I think that China does not want to fight a war. I think China is engaging in acts which can trigger a war, including, for instance, something we don't talk about very much anymore, which are the dangerous intercepts of the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force and the global commons. One of those incidents could turn really deadly and lead to a uh, conflict. But also, we've got to remember that Xi Jinping, who now has a very low threshold of risk, he can do something which can surprise us, take us really off guard, and we could end up in a conflict with China. And, Joseph, a conflict with China could spread to both sides of the Eurasian landmass because Russia, Iran, North Korea, their terrorist allies, could take advantage of the situation. They may not act in um, complicity with China, but they may act to take advantage of a situation that China has created. And also, it's vice versa. So... This is an extremely dangerous period in history. We're talking with Gordon Chang about the uh, developments in Afghanistan and what that means for the U.S.-China relationship. Gordon, what do you see right now as the biggest threat that China poses to the United States? There's so many of them right now, Joseph, it's hard to sort of disaggregate them. But the one thing is that China is exploiting every point of contact with the U.S. to try to overthrow our government. Last year and the beginning of this year, they were urging Americans to commit acts of violence. That's not just subversion. That's an act of war. And so we've got to understand the maliciousness of the system. What I think is really the biggest danger is not what China is doing, but it's the failure of our policy elites to understand the maliciousness of what China is doing and to take those steps that are necessary to protect us. So, yes, the Chinese are aggressors, they're belligerent, they're malicious, but I'm really concerned about American elites who are not defending us. 
to that point, do you believe that the Biden administration is equipped to handle the challenges that the Chinese government presents? Absolutely not. Um, and this is something that we have seen in Afghanistan. Complete failure of the U.S. intelligence community, a complete failure almost of the U.S. military, and clearly a failure of the White House staff. So this is really at a point where um, President Biden has got to do a lot to reassure American allies, friends, and partners that the U.S. can actually continue to uh, keep peace and order in not only the global commons, but around the world. And it certainly can't deal with China. Right now, Biden doesn't even call China an adversary. And they're more than just an adversary, Joseph. They're an enemy. They're an enemy because China calls us an enemy. And yet Biden does not understand that. If you don't understand what your, how your adversary thinks, how your enemy thinks, you have no way of defending your country. That seems to be a theme. Uh, earlier in the program, we were talking about the, uh, the statement from the State Department uh, calling on the Taliban to be inclusive and include women in the leadership of their organization. If Gordon Chang was an advisor to the Biden administration, what advice would you give them on how to handle China? To understand that China is an enemy, to cut off trade, to cut off commerce, to cut off um, technical cooperation agreements, to start defending ourselves. Until we can get a grip on our relations with China, we could lose our country. So until we're confident that we can manage China's challenges to us, we have to cut those contacts. I know that sounds drastic, but the threat that China poses is existential and it's immediate and we could very well lose the freedom and democracy that we have. Gordon Chang, really appreciate your time and your wisdom and insight into what's happening in China. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Joseph. And there does seem to be a theme to the show today. Are we underestimating the threats that exist in the world? It is a constant uh, temptation. We might want not want to believe it's as bad as it is, but sometimes it's actually that bad. Uh, tomorrow we're going to come back and hopefully have some good news as well. And because Jesus is always on the throne, there's always good news. So we can rest assured in that. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.